You may be seated as Bella comes to read the scripture. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to this place that is called the skull, they were, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 32 to 43. Good morning. Welcome to River Oaks. Great to have all of you with us here today. Welcome also to those of you joining us online. Understand we may have a couple of our missions guests with us today, Jared and Kaylin Nielsen. Are you with us in the service this morning? If so, would you stand up? Let us right. Jared and Kaylin are right here. Could we recognize Jared and Kaylin Nielsen? They are two of our missionaries working with uh, in, uh, refugees, many from Afghanistan in the Dallas area. Wonderful ministry there, and it's good to have you back with us this week. Um, I want to mention to you that this coming Thursday evening, we have a service here in the sanctuary at 6 p.m., a Monday Thursday service. Now, if you're not familiar with that word, it comes from a Latin word for mandate, and it recalls Jesus' commandment or mandate given to his disciples prior to his going to the cross when he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And so traditionally, a Monday Thursday service has recalled that time Jesus was with his disciples for the Last Supper. We'll celebrate communion. It's a uh, contemplative, quiet type service. Six o'clock lasts less than an hour, about 45 minutes. So this Thursday, if you can join us at six, we'll be right here. And then, of course, next Sunday morning is Easter Sunday. And as you probably know, this is the Sunday morning of the year when more people typically attend church than any other day. And I stress that because it's perhaps the easiest Sunday of the year on which to invite a guest who does not normally attend church. So if you have a neighbor, coworker, friend, family member who doesn't go to church, I'd urge you to invite them to come with you next Sunday. We're going to add an additional service at 8 a.m. because attendance goes way up, as you know, on Easter Sunday. So if you're bringing a guest, Come at the time that's best for your guests, whether that's 11, 9, 15, or 8. Uh, but if you're able to come at 8, that would open up space for many others who will be coming. Parking will be a concern for us. And uh, we have permission to park at West Forsyth High School. So we got this great big high school next door. Uh, hopefully the weather will be nice and you can just walk over. But if it happens to be rainy, just bring an umbrella, walk over from West. And um, we look forward to having you with us 
next week. I want to say a word of thanks to all those of you who are involved with the dental clinic on Friday. I see Danny Parrish here, Danny and Marta Rhodes and others did a superb volunteer effort uh, to en enable us to partner with a great ministry called Footbridge, offering free dental services to people in need. This was held in Clemens, and I understand the, the expectation was to provide about $150,000 worth of dental services to these folks at no charge whatsoever. Many of you volunteered, were there, some interpreting uh, for uh, Spanish speakers. Thank you so very much. We really appreciate your efforts there. Part of our, our, not part of, the very heartbeat of our church's vision is to be outreach focused. And um, I want to share with you for a moment, uh, part of our vision on the screen it comes from our vision 2025 uh, about spiritual formation, that is our discipleship to spiritual growth within our church, resulting in outreach. And part of that is overflowing generosity that we envision our church being able to give over $500,000 annually to global and national local missions in church planting. I'm excited to tell you that um, some time ago, our elders allocated an additional percentage of our general fund budget for some church planting opportunities that were becoming available to us in other parts of the world. One of these was in the Middle East. Another in Sierra Leone. And I'm excited to tell you that these things have really begun to develop. And I asked Pastor Sonny Flowers to come up this morning and share with you a little bit of what is happening in Sierra Leone. Sonny and Pastor Stewart uh, Mock, who I see over here, uh, Stewart, if you give us a, a raise, they're the ones really mentoring and leading, um, shepherding these church planters in Sierra Leone. Wonderful things are happening. So, Sonny, would you come up and just give us a, a, a report on, on what's happening in Sierra Leone. It's really exciting what the Lord is doing. We've been meeting with four church planners uh, with an organization called African Leadership Initiative. And I don't know about Stuart, but these four guys are here. I think we've learned more from them than they have from us. We're going through a John Stott book on basic Christianity. These, these guys are like sponges. But what the Lord is doing in Sierra Leone, which is mostly Muslim villages they're going into. Now, they're facing a lot of persecution, but the Lord is really doing some amazing things. The next slide here <clears throat> is a way to get to one of the villages. We had bought them some, helped buy some motorcycles for them, but you can't ride a motorcycle across that. And here's one of the villages uh, they just went into. And this is north of uh, where they are ministering at. This is in Liberia. But I want to show you something really interesting. Go to the next picture. Look what they're holding. This is the first time they ever had Samaritan shoeboxes come in their village. We don't know. Maybe some of the ones we collected are there. Next picture. They not only got the boxes, but they shared the gospel with all these kids in the village. There was a lot of them that came to faith. This is a place where they had been before, and the chief let them in. But here's the interesting thing. There was a mosque in the village, and the chief turned it into a place of worship 
for Christians. Next picture. Tons and tons of children. But the stories that I'm hearing from them, uh, Isaac, one of the pastors, was riding down the road going to a village and a man flagged him down that knew him and said, Isaac, will you come and share Jesus in our village? He didn't even know the guy. And so they went and took the Jesus film in and shared the gospel and many, many people came to Christ. And this is just one little incident of what's going on. It's happening every day. Uh, a lot of people in the Muslim faith are just very, very, they're, they're afraid. Most of them are all afraid about their eternal destiny. If you ask them, they really don't know. And what I've learned is that sometimes we, we are afraid to share with uh, our our brothers who are Muslim, you know what? It's really easy to share with them because they're looking for something that's far better than what they're in. And so these guys are really being used. This is only one team of, of there's four other teams. There's five teams. There's about 20 guys that's going out and sharing the gospel. And you just would not believe the stories that they're, they're telling us. So I would ask that you pray for them. Uh, we're planning sometime next year to go and spend and do some ministry with them with, in the villages and just see what God is really doing. But there's tw think about this. We're part of something that big, 20, 20 church planters, indigenous people that are going in and sharing the gospel, and things are beginning to really change. I got a video yesterday from one of the leaders of a big baptism in a river where they're baptizing new believers. So that's really exciting. Thank you for your giving, and thank you for allowing us to spread the gospel not only here but around the world and really make a difference. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sonny. <clears throat> thank you so much. I'd like to take a moment now and pray not only for what's happening in Sierra Leone but for... Um, the community in Nashville and the uh, terrible uh, shooting this week. Also, uh, you may notice Pastor Wes Tuttle not on the <clears throat> stage with us today. His mother died unexpectedly on Friday. So a number of things to be praying about. Would you join me as we pray now? Fathers, we stand before you. We stand in the name of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you've told us, Lord, that we can come boldly before your throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We pray comfort and peace for the Tuttle family today. We pray for the community at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville and for that school. Father, it's unfathomable to us when children are shot when anyone's killed, but particularly children. It's difficult for us to grasp. And we ask in the midst of this that you pour out healing, mercy, comfort. Pour out your spirit today on that church community. Lord, you are the God of all comfort, and we look to you. Father, I'm mindful to pray your shield of protection around our own children, around our own schools here. And Lord, turn back the wave of darkness that brings about such evil. 
Lord, how we thank you for what you're doing in Sierra Leone, and we pray for the outpouring of your spirit on these church planters whose pictures we saw on the screen, that you would bless them and protect them, be a shield of divine care around them, and let their work prosper. Let your church be strongly established in these communities. And now as we open our uh, open your word, would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law? And we pray in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for being with us today. And I want to let you know that we will celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, this morning. And if you didn't get one of the little cups on the way in, we'll have ushers making them available in just a few minutes to you. But today we're going to look at the passage that Bella read for us a few moments ago, Jesus on the cross. Uh, Today is typically known as Palm Sunday because we uh, reflect on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem when people held palm branches and Jesus rode on a donkey amidst shouts of Hosanna, and then the crucifixion. And this brings us to the very heart of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news, and crucifixion certainly does not seem like good news. But on the cross, Jesus had us in mind. And I'd like to reflect this morning on the significance of Jesus' time on the cross and what was happening there. The first and perhaps the most important thing to grasp was, is that on the cross, Jesus became our substitute. We read a moment ago, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. The skull translates the Greek word cranion, much like our word cranium. The Latin word is calvaria, which means calvary. And apparently this hill on which Jesus was crucified looked somewhat like a human skull. So Jesus is crucified there between two criminals. Crucifixion was common in Jesus' day in the Roman world. It was, of course, a very uh, horrible form of capital punishment. It became known in Jesus' time as the slave's punishment because it was such a strong deterrent to runaway slaves. And the question arises, How could such a death have been God's will for his only son, Christ? Was it the will of God? Was crucifixion for Jesus the Father's will? And I believe the answer is yes, that it was planned and it was purposeful. I say that in part because of what the prophet Isaiah wrote, spoke over 700 years prior to the birth of Christ, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And notice these words. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah continues in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, Isaiah is prophesying these words about the Messiah to come, Jesus. 
It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, this is Christ, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, referring to those of us who would put our faith in him, and he shall bear their iniquities. Notice the emphasis on our iniquities being placed on Christ. Jesus taking our place. Jesus is our substitute. Failing to recognize that this was God's plan, born out of his love for us, can lead to a distortion of the gospel. Some people say, well, Jesus was crucified simply because he challenged the status quo. He upset the hierarchy, hierarchy of his time. He was a threat to people in power. And there's certainly some truth in all that. But if Jesus' death was not planned and purposeful, the cross becomes just an unfortunate end to a good life. Rather than the God-ordained means of gracious salvation for us. God the Son himself taking our place. As Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord that he do this for us. It was purposeful, it was predicted, it was planned. It was not an unnecessary or wasteful death. Jesus became our substitute on the cross. Willingly, he took our place. He died our death. We know this further, and Jesus knew this before he even went to the cross by the way he prayed in the garden on the Mount of Olives before being led off to be crucified. Jesus had gone with Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Olives to pray. There in praying, he submitted himself to the Father's will, and he prayed this way, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup, referring to this cup of suffering. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here we see both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. His humanity knowing what he was about to face in the, the horrendous, uh, agonizing death he would die and whatever it must have entailed to have the weight of our sins laid upon him. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We see Jesus' greater devotion to the Father's will. And note, as he submits his will to the Father's will, Christ was strengthened. As he prays, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. I think there's a lesson here for us. Jesus submits to the will of the Father. The Father strengthens him. I think this is true for you and me in life. When we face difficult decisions or we face issues in what we want is at odds with what we know God wants. When God's will contradicts our will, yet we submit our will to God's will, there is strength that is supplied to us in doing that that enables us to do God's will. For example... 
maybe you're dating someone who's not a believer. And you know this person doesn't lead you closer to God. This person leads you farther away from God. And in your heart of hearts, you know that it's probably not God's will. And yet you just can't break it off. And you come to God and, and, and you humble yourself and you say, Father, you know what I want, but not my will. Your will be done. In submitting your will to God's will, there is strength for the doing of God's will. Or maybe there's some opportunity before you in life that, that you know is going to be very financially lucrative, but will call for you to compromise your integrity. And in your heart of hearts, you really know that's not God's will. And so you submit to God. Father, you know, I really want this, but not my will. Your will be done. In submitting of the will to God, there is strengthening to do God's will. There's strength in submission to God. And Jesus, in submitting to God's will, took on the will of our great substitute there on the cross. But there's more happening when Christ is on the cross. Jesus teaches us, even when he's on the cross, on the cross, Jesus is our teacher and example, just as he was throughout his earthly ministry. Having been crucified, Jesus looks down at the soldiers who are dividing up his garments, his earthly possessions, and are mocking him and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself, come down for the cross, and he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think for a moment, how hard would it be to forgive people who had just nailed your hands and feet to a tree and were mocking you and dividing up your possessions? Crucifixion is known to make it very, very difficult to breathe. But can you imagine while struggling to catch a breath, you use your precious limited breath to pray out loud, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Even on the cross, Jesus is teaching us. He's the one who taught us. And when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. He's the one who taught us Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus on the cross, becoming our great substitute, is also continuing to be our teacher and our example. Furthermore, on the cross, Jesus is the bestower of grace to the humble. There was a criminal crucified on either side of Christ, <clears throat> one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ, save yourself and us? But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, you today you'll be with me in paradise. This criminal apparently began to feel a conviction about 
who Jesus really was and about his own need for Christ's forgiveness. And so he prays, Lord, remember me. Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Note, first of all, Jesus had the authority to forgive the man's sin and to proclaim him a recipient of eternal life. Jesus had the, the authority to declare eternal life to people, to forgive their sins. We see the deity of Christ simply in that. But furthermore, notice how quick Jesus was to give grace to someone who humbled himself, just humbled himself. How quick he was to bestow grace on that person. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for the humble. I would say only for the humble. Those who recognize their need for his forgiveness and recognize that Jesus in his death and in his resurrection made provision for that need. The gospel is for those who recognize they need what Christ has done. You've got to become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, and I think he meant that we must be willing to humble ourselves and acknowledge our need for his forgiveness. The gospel is not for the self-righteous, but for those who know their need of God's forgiveness. But this principle of God's grace for the humble applies more broadly than just in regard to our salvation. I think it's one of the great principles of Scripture that God opposes the proud but he freely gives his grace to the humble. One of the greatest principles and, and applicable to so very many areas of our lives. For example, if you're struggling with a, a persistent recurring temptation of some type, the key to victory is not to look in the, in the mirror and say, I'm strong, I'm strong, I'm better, I can overcome it, but rather to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and say, God, I'm weak. I can of myself do nothing. I humble myself before you. I need your grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. You find yourself struggling in your marriage. Find yourself struggling to, to be free from outbursts of anger and and self-centeredness. These things we all struggled with, those of us who are married, have all encountered this. Key is to humble ourselves before God, acknowledge our need, acknowledge our sin, acknowledge our brokenness, and say, God, would you intervene by your grace? Would you give me the grace to be changed? Make me the person you want me to be. Jesus on the cross showed himself to be the bestower of grace to the humble. He always has been. He always will be. One of the great keys to the Christian life is to learn to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In submitting, there is strength. In humbling ourselves, there's grace from God. Jesus is again teaching us that even while he's on the cross. Furthermore, on the cross, Jesus <coughs> becomes our great high priest. Interesting what happens while Christ is on the cross. We read these words. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. The sixth hour would have been about 3 p.m., midday, 
normally there would be some, some sunlight at that time, even on a cloudy day. But darkness came over the, over the whole land. Darkness in the Old Testament can be an indication of judgment. We could consider it judgment on the nation for rejecting Christ, but also a reminder that the judgment of our sins was being poured out upon Christ as if he were guilty of all. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now this curtain was either the curtain of the temple that separated the most holy place called the Holy of Holies, the place the high priest would go every year uh, annually making atonement, or the curtain in the temple court. Either way, the curtain depicted limited access. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Here Christ is quoting Psalm 31 and verse 5. Words come directly from that psalm. Tradition says that these words of Psalm 31.5 were sometimes used by Hebrew mothers in putting their little children to bed. I read that many years ago, and it's a prayer I, I pray myself before going to sleep at night. Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the one Christ used on the cross. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Let's reflect on this remarkable event, though. While Christ is on the cross, it must have been a great angel that took that thick curtain in the temple and tore it toward in two. The curtain, again, I think spoke of limited access. Have you ever wanted to go through a door, seen a sign that said um, restricted access, staff only, platinum card members only? Maybe you're in an airport, you think, I'd love to go in that airport lounge and said, you know, platinum card members only, something like that. Restricted access, limited here. When you have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, you have unlimited access directly to God's throne. I think it's one of the more overlooked benefits of coming to God through faith in Jesus is this access. If you'd lived in Old Testament times, the thought of having direct immediate access to the Holy of Holies, to God Most High, would have been a remarkable thing. And the word access, therefore, shows up in the writings of the Apostle Paul as one of the great benefits believers. It's very easy to overlook. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, For through him, Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Through Christ we got access. Ephesians 3 and verse 12, in whom, that is, in, whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. You know, one of my favorite passages in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, we've now got a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In other words, because Jesus has now gone before us, that great thick curtain that separated us from direct access to God the Father, to the Holy of Holies, to the throne of God, to the throne of grace, it's been torn. 
Christ has made the way through the giving of his own body. And now the throne of God is for believers, the throne of grace, where we come to obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus on the cross becomes our great substitute in a planned and purposeful and predicted offering of his body for our sins, bearing our judgment, taking our place, becoming the Lamb of God slain for our sins, becoming the great substitute. Jesus on the cross continues what he began in his earthly ministry to be our teacher and our example. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus on the cross continued to do what he continues to do today to bestow his grace to the humble. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And Jesus on the cross became our great high priest. The curtain is torn. Access is free and full to those who are in Christ Jesus. As we reflect on these things and upon Jesus' work on the cross, I have just one question today by way of personal application. And that is this, to ask yourself, if you would, have I responded with faith to Jesus and what he's done for me? Faith in biblical usage is not mere <clears throat> intellectual assent or agreement that there was truly an historical person named Jesus who died on a cross. Faith is yieldedness to him, acknowledgement that he is the way and the truth and the life to all who received him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Faith implies receiving him as Savior and as Lord. When you've done that, it's fitting to celebrate and recall what Christ has done from time to time in what we call the Lord's Supper. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during the Passover feast before he went to the cross. And um, a reminder again, if you'd like to participate during this time, we have these elements available. If you will raise your hand, our ushers have trays and we'll bring those around you if you did not get one on the way in. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes about the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> he writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, can you imagine Jesus that evening sitting there with his disciples, saying, Do this in remembrance of me. I want you to remember me. I want you to remember what I've done. And I want to let you know that when you do this, you're making a, a visible proclamation about what I've done and the benefits I've provided for you 
continue this until our return. Paul then adds a warning, the Apostle Paul, that is, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'd like to take a moment now and pray and, and do what the Apostle Paul calls us to do, to examine ourselves. I'll say this to you. I, I All are welcome to take communion here. You don't have to, to be a member of our church. Even if it's your first day here, you're welcome to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. We're delighted to have you do that. I do think in light of Paul's warning, it's it's important that you have a genuine personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that you have truly placed your faith in him as your Savior and Lord. And I say that in light of Paul's warning. This is no mere religious ritual. It is a visible, tangible way of saying, I've received Jesus as my Lord. I've received the benefits of what he's done for me. So let's examine ourselves now in a moment of prayer and silence, and then we'll partake together if you would like to do so. Father, thank you first for what Jesus has done for us, that the Son of God himself would leave heaven to take our place upon the cross, that he would even forgive those who crucified him and teach us to forgive those who wrong us, that he would provide direct access, Lord, to your holy throne as the throne of grace. We thank you. If there are any here, any joining us online who have never placed faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, may this be the day that you recognize your need to humble yourself, to turn from sin, acknowledging it, repenting of it, and by faith embracing Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Speak to us now, Lord, we pray. Amen.